Welcome to another episode of The Corner Booth, the official podcast of RestaurantOwner.com and Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. Today, the restaurant industry is changing faster than ever. Learn from successful independent restaurant operators and other industry leaders as they share best practices that will help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Corner Booth. I'm Chris Tripoli with RestaurantOwner.com. I'm Barry Schuster, and I'm editor of Restaurant Startup and Growth Magazine. And today we're going to present to you a story of uh, restaurant work, expansion work, franchise, franchisor relationships. So get ready. Lauren Fernandez is with us. She's the founder of Full Core. She's got a, a really, really good story to share. Lauren, thank you so much for joining Corner Booth. Thanks. It's such a pleasure to be on. I'm a fan of the show, so I'm, I'm tripping a little bit that I'm here. <laughs> oh, we're, we're very happy you're here, too. Lauren, you know, I've been following you on LinkedIn for some time. You've received many accolades in the industry, lots of recognition. You have many, many people following you, um, clearly because uh, they believe that you uh, have insights um, that are valuable to people in the restaurant business. Um, as I was saying earlier offline, you started out uh, in intellectual property law. You, you have a, a very solid educational background. And somehow you were able to build on that foundation to do a lot of other things, including become a, a multi-unit franchise owner. But I'd like to uh, stop talking and kind of give us your journey to the restaurant business. Was this something that uh, you had maybe thought about even before you uh, you started your your earlier career path? No, it wasn't. I know that might be an unpopular answer, but it's the truth. And I found my way to restaurants. I think by following a little bit of my own true north. So it's a, it's an interesting story. And I think for people who really know me, it's easy for them to see and connect the dots on my resume. But to your average reader, I go from being in-house counsel to a restaurant operator to now an investor. And you're kind of scratching your head like, what? <laughs> but the really, I think there were some guiding principles through that entire process. And so I think fundamentally, I'm a learner. I'm a lifelong learner. That love of education and the opportunities that it can afford us personally and professionally, are, it's just been instilled in me from a very young age. My father came to this country when he was 10 and really followed a path to self-improvement and professional success by going to medical school and becoming double boarded as a surgeon and really excelled in his craft. And what my parents instilled in us from a very early age was that education is sort of the first step, but it's never the last step in your journey towards learning. And so, yes, me and my three siblings, um, we all have postgraduate degrees and we've done the more traditional formal education, but what always pushed me in my career were opportunities that allowed me to stretch personally and professionally with on-the-job experience. And so when I was a young lawyer, I went to a boutique law firm that taught me the ropes. And I'm so grateful for that firm who took me in and really apprenticed me in the craft. And I got some of the best coaching and training that I, you know you could ask for. It was phenomenal. And on a stretch assignment, they sent me to one of their largest clients because their trademark counsel had taken another job and they needed help. So I became their live-in trademark counsel two days a week, which then turned into a full-time job as the associate general counsel for that division of Novartis Pharmaceuticals. 
and also ran their global trademark portfolio. And I was particularly on that job and on that um, in that role in that seat because they were launching a major product for the first time in 10 years out of that country. And they needed legal support on the launch team that understood how to act quickly, mitigate risk and keep it moving, right? Because that's dollars that are lost to the company every day that the patent isn't in play as a product on the marketplace. That was a once in a lifetime, once in a career opportunity to be part of a $2 billion product launch is the stuff that, you know, as a product development attorney, that's the stuff dreams are made of, mm-hmm. right? Amazing. When that opportunity and that launch kind of wrapped up, I had a number of other opportunities within the company, but I got a call from a business friend of mine who I'd gone to business school with, who was in licensing in a fairly new role that had been developed at Focus Brands. And she said, hey, would you just come in and talk with us? And that led to a series of meetings, which led to me jumping ship from Novartis to Focus. And for many people who are familiar with lawyers in the pharma world, like you'd be like, why would you leave pharma? But for me, one of the things that was was hard for me being in the pharmaceutical world was I was so far away from the consumer, right? There's a big old chain of how you deliver the product and there's the ultimate end user And I love food. I mean, who doesn't love food? Mm -hmm. And wanted, I had this innate desire to kind of stretch my skill set. Most lawyers in product dev live in either pharma or food, and I felt better aligned to food. So I jumped at the opportunity to run a team, support the legal department, and you know, restructure it and build that out to support franchising and learn a new area of law, which to me, let's be honest, completely new to me at that point, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and had some great coaches in that space with our outside counsel and other peers in the space. And we were off to the races. And I think fundamentally what that was for me was an understanding that I needed to stretch. I needed to learn some new things. And that opportunity at that time at Focus certainly provided that for me. When we had a change in management, I had another opportunity to kind of stretch again, and I had to make a decision. And rather than take another corporate GC job or similar role, I opted to go into the entrepreneurial space. And that is something that was a tough one for me. Um, You should have seen the look on my dad's face when I told him I was going to buy some restaurants with a partner. He was like, "Um, wait, excuse me, (laughs) you're not going to practice law anymore? Um, And I said, no be not really kind of sort of, and just didn't answer the question and kept moving. And <laughs> yeah, it's totally how I handled it. Um, no. no, cause there's a lot of pride and familial pride and come from a long line of Cuban, you know, lawyers and judges, and th- there's something there. I, I know it, but what's really funny was what paid off my law school loans was owning our chicken salad chick restaurants. It wasn't me being an attorney. It was actually me being an entrepreneur. True story. And so we formed Origin Development Group. And the idea then was to go out and find an early stage brand that we could be a growth partner to by being a multi-unit operator in their system. And the opportunity presented itself to buy out a then current franchisee. My partners and I made the deal happen. We took over three restaurants and built eight more in about, about 20 months. So it was a pretty punishing and accelerated growth schedule, but I managed operations and development for that company origin. And so we became pretty quickly um, Mm -hmm. the largest multi-unit franchisee in that system. 
We developed a lot of kind of ancillary programs in support of the brand, of course, with their permission. So one was catering, one was delivery. Um, we did a lot of non-traditional development and had three locations in a fairly large establishment in downtown Atlanta. So we really tried to innovate in the, those boundaries of being a franchisee, but with the respect that you need to have for the franchisor and the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I that have to just of- underline something really quick here. Okay. I think everyone is following this. You left law, love of food, drives you into the entrepreneurial spirit. You form a group with another partner. You buy a starting up brand, three franchised units, but then you had eight more in 20 months. Yeah. So, yeah, can, can you spend just a minute on the the uh, the expansion strategy there in that short period of time, the bench strength that was developed, the structure, the site finding, the financing? How did all that come together? Because eight units in 20 months, especially for a brand new group to the industry, is really running fast. And the brand wasn't very well known in the Georgia, the greater Georgia market, but specifically Mm. in the Metro Atlanta DMA. So we had a challenge there. And so a couple of really critical things that we, I think, got right. Some of it was just intuition and some of it was being in the right place at the right time. So number one, we had an exceptional relationship with CBRE who worked as our master broker during that situation. We got really dialed in on what we were looking for as owners that were even maybe more specific than the real estate directive from the brand itself. So we gave a lot of authority to our master broker to help tee up deals for us. And we had, I mean, no joke, a weekly standing call where we reviewed pipeline. I was just constantly stacking pipeline in. And we knew, we just, we knew that the, the market was hungry for this brand. We knew we could take advantage of the opportunity and we wanted to be prepared for the demand that was coming that we were helping to build. Two was we invested a lot in PR above and beyond what the brand was doing. So I was for a hot minute, the face of chicken salad, chicken Atlanta, I was on the news, I was on the radio, I was everywhere. And it's so funny because people still will come up to me and they think that I'm the owner of the whole brand, mm-hmm. not the local franchisee. And they'll, they'll look at me and go, do I know you from somewhere? I'll be like, no, I don't think so. And it's because they probably saw me either in one of our restaurants or on local news, helping promote the profile of the brand you know, three, I think that we had really great capital partners and that was a blend of both equity and debt. And I was really fortunate to have some fairly sophisticated partners who helped really grease those wheels for us. So it was always frugal. It was always done with an eye towards the bottom line, but we were able to rapidly grow the brand in our market because we were well-capitalized. And I think indeed, for as a woman, as a minority, and as a you know emerging multi-unit entrepreneur, that's the number one challenge, right? You can figure out the playbook for growth all day long, but if you don't have the right money behind you, it's going to stall you, and then you're going to lose your momentum, and you lose the real kind of I think the the benefit of leveraging the the infrastructure you need to grow to that size because the people that you need at unit three to five guess what? You're still going to need them at unit 10 plus. So um, for us, I think we also, we didn't actually hire a ton of internal headcount to do this, um, which is interesting. And I'll just say this. um, I don't know that that was a smart move. And indeed, when we develop brands at, at full course, 
We very much focus on allowing operators to do what they do best, which is ops. And we don't ask them to develop at the same time. Like our team backs them with development strategies and execution so that they're not overwhelmed because that I'm on record many times saying this, it was exhausting doing full-time dev and managing ops for most of that ownership period. Um, Don't recommend anyone doing that. That's a lot of work. It's a lot. Exactly. And I, yes. And I I understand everything you mentioned there. Development requires a lot of full-time attention and details. When you're also operating that many units, yeah, it is. It, it's overwhelming, but you you obviously learned while you were growing. All of these were in the Atlanta, Georgia area, so they were fairly close and easy to supervise or no? No. I So our furthest south uh, was Peachtree City. The furthest northeast, if you will, was Athens. So the wow. furthest drive time I was ever staring down was probably somewhere between four and five hours. I lived in my car. My car was my office. I did so much business on my Bluetooth. You would not believe. Um, I had a mobile toolkit in the backseat, a mobile office, and I ran that business from my iPhone. And I don't, I'm not even joking. I mean, that was essentially how we did it. So you've gotten this experience and this is a chicken salad check um, Mm -hmm. and 11 units. And we'll probably not let go of, of of that whole uh, journey because that's fascinating, but now you have full course and you're helping, uh, concepts, um, develop into multi-unit businesses. Um, are you starting out with uh, single unit concepts that, that you feel that have, uh, potential? Are you going necessarily always in the direction of getting them to the point where they're franchisable? Or are some of the units that you, some of the concepts you're working with, they're saying, no, we want to be corporate owned, all of our units. Um, tell us about full course and, and, uh, cause uh, clearly a lot of our listeners and our readers and members, um, um, their dream is not to stop with one or two units. Mm-hmm. So Full Course is the industry's first and only incubator and accelerator. We focus on food brands. And what we mean by that is any packaged good that exists, it's already manufactured, that maybe could be center of plate at a restaurant. So we'll talk to anyone who's actually got an existing food business on the manufacturing side. And that's a bit of a nod to my past as a product development expert. And we still use that as a main strategy at Full Course for development. So we'll work with those types of brands, but we'll work with restaurateurs. We prefer a limited service model. So we we often are labeled as a fast, casual developer. I think that that's a fair statement. It just allows us more flexibility to dial up or down the labor structure and lends itself a little bit better to the type of omni-channel development that we specialize in at full course. So one of the things that we bring to the table, besides being a development partner and a, an investor that doesn't take a majority share is we really do focus on building brands out to meet customers where they are, to meet them where they're at and where they want us to be. And for us, that means we develop brands an omni-channel, right? So it's not just company stores, it's franchised, it's non-traditional units and airports, stadiums, arenas, hospitals, or universities, whatever fits the brand. We develop products out of these brands that, that will facilitate ease of use in our franchised and company stores, but also that can be turned into retail products. 
And we also look at off-premise sales, whether that's through virtual brands or catering programs or what have you. And that's where our development team and our approach, I think, really sets us apart. We are not a one-trick pony. We love franchising. We love company stores. We'll do it all. And all of that allows us to build brands that are more financially stable, that require less capital, and ergo do not require us as full course to take a majority share as usually the first major investor in these brands. Um, one thing I think I will add just to finish that off is we'll talk to anyone. So we have an incubator that exists in our nonprofit foundation that's focused on educating that first time restaurateur on avoiding the steps or the pitfalls and all the steps you need to get open. So we're helping you hopefully survive that first year in business with really practical and tactical tips and tricks and templates that will help you get through that. That's our incubator called Navigator. Um, um, So I'm sorry, that's launched and it has a Navigator coaching program that's attached to it. So if you need help or just need to ask an expert a question, we're there for you. And it's done as a group coaching kind of concept. But on the business, you know, on the investor and business side of this, our accelerator is focused on businesses that are already open. So our minimum is one unit open one year. We prefer for the brands to be over a million in AUV or total sales, but we'll look at you even if you're not. And often we can prime those businesses for immediate accelerator acceptance, or we can work with them so that they fit our investment model in the future. And And do you go ahead, Chris? Oh, I was just going to say, how did that start from that ramping up and running now 11 units? Hmm. How did that start? Did you decide in addition to the 11 units or was there an opportunity to sell? And you said, I'm going to take this and just start coaching others. I'd love to see the connection, how it went. Yeah. So we, we exited in 2018 and we ended up selling our units back to the parent company, which is the right thing to do for the brand and for our partnership at that time. I had did not set out to sell those units. We weren't really planning on it. I, I think it just became right time. And really there's no better explanation than that. Um, you know, they moved the headquarters to Atlanta and we were sitting on that territory. It just made sense. So sure. we that um, 2019, I took a sabbatical year and I started really thinking about some of the things that I had experienced and that I saw as opportunities and problems that needed to be fixed. Um, One of them was what we already mentioned was that whole thing where doing the development on an early stage brand is definitely a mix of art and science. And not everybody's really great at it, but I happen to be exceptionally good at it. And I knew better than to try and operate restaurants and do development at the same time. And I think most owner operators would appreciate how hard that is to do both. So we needed a solution that solved for development expertise and really viewed brands as being respected and important and having to connect to the owner's purpose and mission and keep the soul of the brand alive while executing a growth strategy that really meets the owner's needs and our investors' needs as well, right? So that's kind of number one. Number two is, you know, the vast majority of the diversity in this country when it comes to restaurants is it's an interesting conundrum, right? So on paper, we look tremendously diverse through gender, race, ethnicity, immigration status, all of it. But what really happens is a lot of the talent is trapped in the back of the house. And on a people level, you've got to invest in those folks so they can level up and stay on a career path and have living Mm -hmm. wages in our industry. Mm -hmm. We have to invest in people. But even more importantly, you have to look at the ownership. 
the ridiculous thing about this is on paper, we're super diverse, but we are not diverse at the beyond the one unit level. So a lot of those folks who are women, minorities, immigrants, single parents, veterans, disabled, whatever, however you come as an underrepresented founder, the likelihood is that you manage to get that one unit open and you're stuck there. The problem with that is it's only worth a two turn or two times your profit margin in a given year. That's not enough for you to pass to the next generation. That's not enough for most people's retirement. And how do you unlock that potential and give them the access that they need to those tools for growth? And I would submit to you that, yes, one, it's the development team, that expertise, but two, you got to give them the right capital. And the problem with these early stage businesses is their value, their book value is not there yet, but they have unlimited potential if you know what you're looking for. And so we built an equity structure that addresses those issues and treats them fairly for the future value of the business rather than just writing them a check for the current book value, which is usually less than half a million dollars. So Rethinking capital structures was very important and that we come to the table as a fair and equitable provider of capital. And here's the third thing is a lot of these owners just don't understand the playbook for growth. So they will knee jerk react to go franchise a business after one unprofitable unit. They'll, you know, think that that's the promised land and it's going to be what makes them their retirement nest egg. And that is not often what happens. And I think coaching and educating folks on what those channels of growth look like, what their options are on capital is really where it's at. So I probably spend more time on the phone educating prospective clients because I want them to leave the call making smart decisions, regardless of whether or not they choose full course. I want them to be able to ask that tough question of their next PE you know, call that they're going to get where they go, Oh, do you, do you capital call? You know, do you, are you going to let me have a seat on the board? Are you going to replace me? What's my exit package look like? I I want them to be smart enough to ask those tough questions. If indeed there's even a capital source, that will talk to them. So to me, that's what I, I sat back and I looked at those issues. I'm like, this is why we have all of the same food out there. This is why all the brands that grow huge look the same. The money that's coming in is going to that stuff, not to where we should be putting it, which is nurturing those people and the growth of the brand down at that one unit level. To me, that's where the magic is. That's the food that we love to eat in our communities. Those businesses wouldn't exist otherwise. Exactly. Well, and a question, one question I have for you, it, if I'm hearing you correctly, Lauren, among all the other things that you do in terms of the oper- the development and, and, and all of that, um, you're serving in, in some way in, in the role of, of a, a private equity funder. Is, is all the, the PE funding that you're directing toward, I'll call them your clients, coming out of full course, or do you have relationships with other PE funders uh, and do some matchmaking? We are the equity firm at Full Mm -hmm. Course. So our business has three main pillars. One is our nonprofit foundation, the Full Course Foundation, which focuses on low to no cost education to personally and professionally better the people who are in this industry. So when you partner with us for an investment, you, your team, your franchisees, and their employees all get access to that educational platform for free, because that is how important our our view is on education. The middle kind of 
leg of the stool, if you will, um, our pillar is our management company where we have our operational and our development teams that are best in class experts across every major aspect of the business from operations to marketing, to people, to finance, to development, and all of that that entails. Um, The last piece of this is obviously our funds. So we raise sequential funds. We need about $20 million for every four to five brands that we invest in. So we are constantly raising capital underneath our private equity umbrella. And that is directly to benefit our clients who will later become our investment partners. (laughs) Well, I would say that was a year well worth spent um, because you just can't find um, many alternative financial sources. Um, You just can't. I mean, I've been in this, you know, all my life. And so I think I just want to underline what you're saying. If you took that year sabbatical and what you really wanted to do is make impact in the industry and you wanted to find out how to overcome some of the challenges and fill the need, you hit the right one. Because trying to hit these small, developing, uh, diverse, uh, 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 ethnicity type of food operator, um, we, you know, I live in that world. I love those operators, but you said it so well when you said we typically get stuck in the neighborhood uh, because they're excellent hands-on operators, but they have one unit maybe two, and they are doing a million a year or so, and they're making money and it's a living. But when we put a multiple on the earnings, it isn't really enough to say, make a company out of. Uh, And there's very few, if any, directions for them to go to get out of there before full course. So I think you did, if that was a year well worth spent, if it directed your attention to that niche. Okay. So now it's only been going for a few years. Three, three um, years. It actually, three. we just turned three. Yeah. Well, happy birthday. <laughs> and you. tell us a little bit about those clients, the initial clients, uh, without maybe, you know, diverging what you don't feel comfortable diverging. If you could just tell us a little bit about size of people you work with, uh, what was needed, uh, what parts of the country, uh, success stories, numbers of units, that kind of thing. Yeah. So we have vetted on average about three deals a week and that is a punishing pace. So there's no of people who need full course and this business has evolved and will continue to evolve over time. We aren't trying to get it perfect every single day. We're trying to make it better every single day. So part of our company culture is we listen to those prospects. We listen to the clients. We listen to our invested partners so that we can constantly be improving our own processes. One of the things that I'm adamant about at Full Course is we're here to level the playing field. So to us, That means we do seek out and ask for minority or underrepresented founders. And, you know, indeed, one of the first investments we made were in the Idnani brothers, Neil and Samir, who own nonstop, a fast, casual Indian concept. And it's designed to build a bridge of understanding to Indian culture by making the food approachable and understandable and enjoyable. And, you know, it's, it's fun, right? Like you go in there and you feel like you got a little bit of an education at their mom's dining room table, right? Like you get it from the source and it just feels easy. It shouldn't feel isolating. So we look for a lot of things in brands at full course but it's always about the founders first. We want to partner with founders who understand they need help growing, 
that there's room for operational improvement and systemization of what they're doing, who are respectful, I think, of our needs as investors as well. And we get that kind of alignment very early by planning their growth with them before we even put a dime in. So it's important to me that we honor founders, we honor their purpose and mission, we leave them in control of the company, and we don't try to pull a fast one and erode them off their position. We want them at their first major liquidity event when they exit to be sitting on 51% of the company. That means we put our money where our mouth is and we don't capital call. We don't leverage these businesses up with debt. I don't believe that that's good for them in these early stages. And so we have put a tremendous amount of thought and energy into what they need. And that's informed not just by our experience as operators, but by listening. And I will say this until I'm blue in the face, that is a company value of empathy. If you don't understand what it is to walk in those shoes and to feel that pain of not being able to get capital because you're a minority or you're female, if of not knowing how to grow, of not knowing how to find a real estate broker that they even exist to help you find a location, maybe you got taken advantage of on a lease. I mean, there's just so many pitfalls and and you know traps. I want to just level the playing field, like right, just. Mm educate, 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 but then give them the fair capital that they deserve. And, you know, for me, that means we're looking for brands that we know meet consumer demand, but that also are underrepresented. I think it would be fair to say that Full Course isn't here to do more of the same. (laughs) There's a lot of work, love, and energy not to mention dollars that go into what we do. So we have to be very careful in the brands that we select for our process. And it's not for everyone, but we do have opportunities for everybody. And that's something that I think also differentiates us. If you called another equity firm and the deal wasn't for them, you may or may not even get an answer. And what we do instead is we give real-time feedback to our prospects We love to turn them on to opportunities we have through our nonprofit to connect them with other capital sources, grants, sponsorships, whether it's debt or equity, we want them to be educated. So we will give them resources for free or low cost over in our nonprofit. So my goal is when you call us, we give you something to help you. And if it's not the investment side, we're not just hanging up the phone. We got something for everybody. And that has just been on demand. You know, we didn't even have an incubator for startup idea based or like food truck to brick and mortar kind of concepts, but we kept getting those calls and we needed to do something to help them. So we developed our launch modules to help them. And we get so much joy out of seeing them succeed. And here's the thing in a year or two, I hope they come back on knock on my door when they're ready to grow. (laughs) Right. I'm betting on it. I'm betting on it. Um, It's just about showing up and doing the right thing for this industry. And if I can say one thing about my sabbatical year, I made a decision that year. I didn't know exactly what full course was going to look like, but I made a decision to not be, oh, look, there's a problem in our industry and not come with a solution. And I thought, who else is going to build this bridge and help bring people over it? Who else is more qualified to do this than me? And that was a hard one. I know that that sounds right, like obvious. <laughs> you look at my background, you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. But 
I, I was reluctant. I knew that there was a solve for this, but I was like, why me? Like, why should I be the one to do this? And one of the things that my husband said to me that I'll never forget was if you don't solve for this, no one else is ever going to do it. No one else will. That's a good way to look at it. Mm -hmm. And and the timing of this, um, although, you know, what you bring to the table is is tremendous. um, But uh, from my my perspective, and and if you would comment on it uh, to make sure that I'm seeing things clearly, one in the last five, 10 years, um, consumers' tastes in food have become much more um, expanded. Uh, you know, Bon Me now becomes a, uh, uh, you know, something that's mainstream, uh, jerk chicken, Indian concepts, one. And then um, as someone who has uh, is a professor at a historically Black university, including having been chair of the Hospitality and Tourism Program, um, 15 years ago, my students said, well, I want to be, I want to work for Hilton or Marriott, or I want to get a job with um, one of the big chains. Now, most of them are telling me, no, you know, I want to have my own business. And so, am I seeing it clearly in terms of uh, the time is, is, is ripe for, uh, for full course and, and for what you're doing? I would certainly hope so. I do think that we have the wind at our back right now. And I think that this was just a kind of confluence of a number of factors, right? One, consumer behavior is changing. We're down for a limited service model now. So full, um, you know, we're, we love it full course, a fast casual model. But one of the reasons we love it is because over the next five years, it's projected to grow at a rate on average of 13% of year. So I'm here for that, right? We love double digit growth in the category. Um, you know, I think that's an indicator of how consumers want to interact with their brands, which is really interesting, right? They want flexibility of format. They want to be able to have it delivered, roll in and get a quick meal. And the value proposition is there, right? It's quality food, but, you know, at a decent price point. So I, I think that's part of it. Um, two, I, this is just sort of my layman's opinion, <laughs> right? Like I've been eating ethnic food my entire life. So I I'm like, kind of like, what's, why is this confusing to people? But here's what I think is a little bit happening. I, I think, and I will credit, um, uh, Meredith, uh, Meredith Sandlin and Carl Osborne on this one with their book, delivering the digital restaurant. We have crammed into an incredibly tight period of time. Let's call it two years, maybe, maybe three with the pandemic. We have crammed into that a massive revolution in digital behavior with consumers as it relates to restaurants and food. Now it's easy and cheap for you to try other types of food. You can tack on like one samosa from nonstop to your order and it's not a big deal, right? Like you can be adventurous with your food. And I think something else also happened we were really into delivery. We needed it, right? Americans don't often cook at home. I'm still surprised by that as someone who loves to cook. But here's the thing, you get burned out really fast. You know this, chicken fried chicken was like the number one food during the pandemic. I mean, it quickly pushed pizza down because we got burned out on pizza. I think we're just a little burned out on the same old, same old. So sure. people are getting a little bit more comfortable kind of stretching out. And and three, I think, again, fast, casual, times, culturally representative food 
is the way in, right? That is how you connect to people most efficiently. When you're in a fast, casual environment, you can have a dining room where people get more education about the culture, about the country of origin, the backstory of the founders. So you might initially connect to that consumer through delivery or maybe, you know, through a catering that you have somewhere. But when you come to the restaurant and you take that experience further, that's where we create the loyal customer. That's where the food becomes a bridge. So I think we're on this renaissance. Like you can see it in the way people are searching for food too. The most searched foods are ethnic foods. And whether whether it's Instagram Mm -hmm. or Facebook or Yelp even, it's fascinating. So we're right at the beginning of this wave of, I think, expansion of our palates. And when I say our, I mean the average American, not just you, me, or anyone else who's a major foodie and who will try weird stuff, right? (laughs) Right. uh, You know, no one could have said it better. Now you're, you're right on point. I think on so many levels, Um, the digital um, push has helped broaden authenticity. The fact that consumer behaviors now are demanding convenience at all levels. I mean, convenience just used to mean we were going to hit a drive-through window or get pizza delivered. Okay, well, you know, it, it now means, no, I want that convenience, but I want to eat a wide variety of food. Um, we can maybe thank uh, Food Network a little bit for that. Everyone is more knowledgeable yeah. of food now. So, yeah, they know that if I don't just need to have something delivered that is uh, Chinese or pizza, yet, you know, just one decade ago, that's really what it was. Um, and trust me, the pizza clients that I have kind of wish that it remained that way, that convenience meant deliver a pizza and don't think about anything else. But no, no, um, at Ethnicity is really mainstream. And uh, so you're heading into the right direction. This makes me think of another market that I'd love to have you talk about, because I think a lot of your clientele, the incubator, the startup, and then the minority owned business is is drawn to non-traditional locations. And partly that's because most governments and municipalities for the last couple of decades, I've worked in this a lot, where there are those minimums where if public funds are going to be used for something, um, it's arenas or it's parks or it's ballparks or it's convention centers or it's airports, that a large percentage, sometimes up to a third, must be able to be generated and kept by local and managed by minority-owned vendors. So, you know, I've been very busy in that sector as a consultant, but tripping over the problem of capital. Uh, are you, is this a feeding frenzy for you? Are you able to work with many people in that niche? Uh, yes. It, so th- it's no secret that non-traditional development is a major full course strategy. And it's not just because it's a natural fit for the types of brands that we invest in. They're actually just great business models. And so, especially let's just take airports as an example. If yeah. you're selling franchises and you want the next level of kind of geographic expansion that an airport's the best place for you to be like a really nice hub, um, in your market and your geography. Um, you know, I think it's, it's an interesting play. Um, when we work with brands and this is on the consulting side, the coaching side, or even on the investment side, it's not lost on us that there's, you know, federal and state incentives for minority owned businesses. And those are something that when appropriate, we do pursue, Is it kind of like a gold rush? No, I don't think so. I think that that's often a perception 
But I can tell you just in my career in the last, you know, 12 years, how many bids I've been involved in in airports, it's dizzying how many we've actually landed, even as a minority or female owned business like full course, or even as the client businesses themselves have minority status. rare, right? It just has to be, everything has to line up. You have to be in the right bid package, the timing, everything. So I actually don't necessarily always look at that as a capital issue. I just think in those types of opportunities, there's like one spot and you're competing against a lot of other talent and you don't always know what the operator or the owner of the facility wants. Like they may have said to the bidding agent, like, Hey, we need no more, no more Mexican concepts. Can you just go get me another Hispanic concept that isn't Mexican food? You don't know that kind of stuff. And so what I suggest to people is like, look, if that's going to be part of your strategy, you just have to be opportunistic and be ready for it when it comes, which means that you have the capital set aside, whether it's better equity, and it's just sitting there waiting to be tapped, but you got to be ready to pounce when those opportunities present themselves. I I find strategy, like long-term planning and strategy on most non-traditional locations to be a bit of a fool's errand because you just, it is so opportunistic and it is a little bit the luck of the draw. I hate to say it that way, but that's just my experience. No, I don't think you're wrong either. I just just love it when it works that when (laughs) when you travel to a city that the city is so much better represented when you can see brands that represent the wide, vast majority of the neighborhoods in that city rather than just one more national coffee brand right next to the Golden Arches. And and um, and I think everyone has seen that it is a win if you can spread it out a little bit and have the smaller companies working right next to the bigger ones. Everyone wins. Um, and uh, so hopefully we'll be seeing a lot more of that. So uh, capitalization, um, expertise and development, critical. Um, what a great, what a great story. Uh, story and opportunity for these operators. But on the operation side, um, if you would talk about this for a minute, Chris and I have have interviewed many operators, including some very smart operators. um, And it seems to come back to the the same challenge, um, which is labor, people, Um, even, even the smart operators and for all the reasons that we know in, in terms of the labor market, uh, is there any way that you step in there to give your partners, I will say, um, some kind of advantage on that front? Yeah. So again, one of the things I love about a fast casual model is you can actually build it with high labor and low labor. So you can really kind of flex but we like to build brands that I think leverage technology and make it a little easier for an operator to flip between those two. Now, I think the trap there is that you sacrifice labor for better profit margin, which is not something I'm a fan of. Like you cannot sacrifice and switch to that low labor model just to jam better profits to the bottom line. That is almost always at a sacrifice for either food quality or customer service or some mix of the two. And so we like to build models that have flexibility, but we monitor closely the level of staffing and control. Now, look, part of our role operationally is to support these businesses, but to not take over operations. So I am trusting that an operator that we've partnered with is making good decisions and has really good labor organization and charts and scheduling tools, you know, whether those are technology driven or not is another discussion, but to really help them and empower them to make better decisions. 
And sometimes you have to do that, but be willing to sacrifice a point or two to the bottom line, especially when these brands are in early stage growth and you start slamming higher volume through these units. It sometimes is tempting to not staff up to meet that demand. And what we say as investment partners is no, focus on the customer service. This will level out over time, but you have to staff to that volume. You have to staff to that level of customer service and quality because that's how you generate long-term fans who are loyal to you. And that's how you get their frequency of visit, right? You, You have to create that foundation and it starts with people. I think one of the tools that we do give our operators as partners is, again, access to that education. So when you show your team that you're investing in them by giving them access to management training courses, multi-unit leadership courses, how to become your own franchisee. We have a manager to franchisee program that is unparalleled. I've never seen anything like it in the industry, and we do it in every brand that we franchise. So our general managers know that for every year they spend with us, on average, look at about a third of their franchise fee waived, which removes another barrier to entry to them becoming a business owner. But we're also investing for free and them becoming business savvy. So think about that. You're getting a general manager that really understands your business and then becomes one of your trusted first franchisees. It's a no-brainer to us, right? But you have to be willing to take those types of investments in people as an investor. And I I think that sadly, that's something that's missing from our industry right now. And Chris, how many times have you told me and how many times people we interviewed told told us just how critical it is to have that right general manager if you have any hopes of growing? Well. You know, that's true. I mean, and 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 people sometimes, um, as, as Lauren has just underlined, sometimes have to learn it the hard way. But there is no, especially in those early growth years, mm-hmm. there just is no race to save your way to success. I mean, obviously, savings, as, as you pointed out very well, you want to have good models and you want to match your dollars and whatnot. But n- no one, especially in their early years, has been able to go on a savings way to succeed as a company. It's much better if they even if they have to do that one or two points like you mentioned but it's because of right management or building staff creating that loyal customer out of a satisfied customer that builds that that check average that builds the return visit now you're really building a foundation of of satisfied customers to build off of and if that costs that point or so but but it is tough it is tough but it's it's just too easy for people to want to say uh, I'm going to quickly increase my profit by cutting here or cutting there. And before you know it, that cutting here, cutting there, cuts something too important. And um, anyway, and they learn the hard way that they're not able to save the word of success. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's deeply ironic to me that it's actually not one of the preferred levers for driving profitability in a business. Like cutting people is almost never the answer. Um, you know, we could look at your pricing, we can look at your cost of goods and have a more direct and right. immediate impact on your profitability and tuning those areas of the business before you start cutting on people. I just, I, I don't, I don't know that that's right. Um, but I think it's, it's more than just having the right bodies. And I think when we were so understaffed as an industry during and after the pandemic, it was just anybody, like just get anybody in there. And we have a terrible reputation as an industry of churning through people and a terrible retention rate. 
And that costs us money. So if you are a sophisticated operator and an investor, investing in your people reduces your churn, improves your retention. And that is a better contribution to the bottom line and the growth of the business for the future than it is just sort of slashing and burning through your, your schedule, right? It's, it's, not, it's not the right answer. I hear that you respect the concept and what the operators are bringing in terms of their cuisine. Um, do you get involved in their menu? Do you say, listen, um, we need to do some menu engineering. There are items here which we don't think um, are helping you. Um, or do you kind of just, are you a little bit hands-off in that regard? Um, so that's a wonderful question. I think you have to walk a fine line between what the brand's soul is, right? If it's your mom's recipes or it's a chef-driven concept, it's really tough to move the needle on the, the kind of menu, but there is a certain amount of menu engineering and cross-utilization that goes on costing, um, you know, where we try to improve on what's there and make recommendations and suggestions, but that might be one of the areas of the business that we are the most deferential. And you have to take the long play on this. When I was running franchise compliance at Focus Brands, one of the most important lessons I learned was play the long game. These franchisees are in multi-decade year relationships with these brands and with us as owners, never lose sight of the long game. So if you can come up with a win-win solution now, that just strengthens the relationship over time. So as, as you know, co-owners, as investors and partners in these businesses, the approach is always transparent, collaborative, and win-win. Like, how do we come at this problem together as a team? And we don't really hold anything too serious or too sacred. You know, I think we're willing to kind of change how even we do things as a business and continually improve. And we expect that of our partners as well. And so I'm not saying it's easy. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds easy, right? But it's not. It's actually the hardest thing we do is showing up in partnership. It is so much easier to just take 51 or 75% of a business and just make those decisions unilaterally. But that is not what a long-term partnership looks like. And we are in these brands for at least five to seven years. And I don't know about you, but if I were a founder and an owner, I wouldn't want someone who steamrolled me. I would want someone who heard what I had to say, but then layered their expertise and opinion on it and helped me come up with a solution. And, and unfortunately, I, that probably happens more often than than not. I, I think it. I think it is the norm, mm -hmm. and I don't. I don't know that that works for for me. And so, if that wouldn't work for me, why would I ever expect that to work for anyone that we've invested in, um, in them personally, and also invested in their business? Like, I just think we can do better as an industry. It's harder. It takes more time, but we get better results at the end. I'm sure of it. Because we have all the smart people around the table and the founders there, and we all respect what they've done, what they've built, and how they've built it. And that is keeping the soul of the brand intact. So what are the exit strategies that get considered as you collaborate and you, you plan the long-term strategy? Is it typically a small, say, family concept? And then they start growing. And what they're really interested is maybe in secession planning, next generation takes over, or is it always sell to the bigger company and we're going to go retire? What is it you're seeing? Yeah. So, you know, first and foremost, we have very, um, 
very much a focus on what the owners want and what their expectations are for like year five, six, seven, when we have to exit these investments. So we always take that into consideration, but you got to remember, I have to return capital to my investors. So at some point we do have to exit. We have very frank and upfront discussions about what that looks like with our invested partners. Our strategy primarily is to exit to another lower to middle market private equity. That is really where a lot of the buyers are for these size brands that are like north of 3 million EBITDA, um, usually have a franchise system activated. There's a lot of channels for growth for the next you know, owner. Um, that is, I think, primary strategy right there. Um, however, there are opportunities for us to exit the deal and the fund that it's in and flip it over into another one of our funds to continue to grow the brand. There are also opportunities for us to potentially continue riding with the investment until there's a potential IPO. So all of this is just going to depend on the then current market conditions. But what I will tell you is that flexibility in exit and the timing of it is very important to us maximizing return to our investors. It also allows us to really, I think, think of full course like a flywheel. We put two to three brands in every year, and then we can liquidate them as quickly as we bring them in. So this is really truly designed to be an accelerator that you would see in other industries, whether it's tech or CPG. Um, we have built this for our industry and custom built it at that. So it not, doesn't feel rushed. It doesn't feel, you know, ramshackle. It's not one note. It's definitely a fully baked omni-channel strategy that's well-funded from the beginning and has the right experts behind it to make it go. Um, and, you know, all of that depends on our founders that we invest in being exceptional operating partners. So we spend a lot of time developing them as leaders and developing their multi-unit leadership skills as well. Lauren, if I heard you, um, correctly. Uh, you mentioned IPOs. Um, is that part of the vision uh, with some of your concepts to uh, actually take them to Wall Street Have you, without having to divulge anything? Because I know that can be very uh, sensitive information. Uh, have you had any close brushes in that regard? <laughs> Or successes, or you can say nothing and we'll just all wonder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think with the brands that I'm involved with now, it's a little too early to say. Um, we don't ever list those as primary strategies. Our investors understand that, the brands understand that. Um, they know what the primary strategy is. There's a lot of emphasis on that. But my view on that, look, from the hundreds, probably thousand plus deals I've done in the space is being deal ready means you're ready for anything, right? You can be ready for, you know, secondary markets. You can be ready for exchanges, whatever, right? It just absolutely opens a world. So one of the things that I am very proud of is look, that legal background and all of that education, our brands are built deal ready from the beginning. And so it may not seem like a big deal in the beginning, but we coach, teach, and train all of the operations team within these businesses to make sure they're keeping immaculate records, right? We do kind of run a playbook in that regard so that these brands are ready and they're built right from the beginning. I fully understand that at some point there will be a moment in the future <laughs> where so, oh my God, that brand came from full course. Oh shoot, we're going to have to pay a little more because the level of quality that's coming out from our accelerator, our program, our hard work and effort 
is going to command that level of respect in financial markets that are out there with the buyers we need. Mm-hmm. And I think with that, we're going to have to wrap up for now. But before we do, Lauren, can you tell our listeners, how can people learn more about Full Course? Where can they go to connect with you? Absolutely. You can find any of the resources we talked about today, whether through it's our foundation and the free courses we offer, our coaching, our navigator program, our you know investment offerings, all of those things are at fullcourse.com. And you can find us on most forms of social media as at Full Course Official. Excellent. Excellent. Well, this has been tremendously uh, informative. Uh, we could, I know, talk more and more. We may just need to invite you to come back and maybe give us a little case study as you continue to grow full course and keep us posted on all the new things and innovative ways you're handling your clients. So thanks again for today. Continued best of luck. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care. And thanks to everybody for joining in. And we hope to see you really soon on another Corner Booth. Thank you for joining us on the Corner Booth. We'll be back next Tuesday with more inspiration, insights, and industry best practices to help you engage your team, delight your guests, and grow your business.